Welcome to another episode of Axe the Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey, joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, I, I think you sound normal again. I, I hope so. What you don't know is that I usually sound like I'm talking through a tin can. It's just yeah. this time around. <laughs> this, this is actually the exception to the rule. You sound like an alien from the moon communicating to us <laughs> from a tin can. I sound like Charlie Brown's teachers. I used to love that sound when I was a kid. I still do. <laughs> yeah, so today on Acts of the Blood God, we're going to be talking or doing another mailbag, Nadia. Yeah, that should be fun. Uh, we get a lot of mail, and it's nice to catch up on it sometimes. Yes, and also we are going to be doing a review of Indivisible. Yay! Yes, that was a game I played and reviewed. Yeah, you seem to like it, right? Yes, um, we'll get more into it, I'm sure, but uh, yes, I, I did very much like it. It does have some rough edges, though, which I'll go over. The secret is that I'm not actually playing that many RPGs at the moment. I am playing Dragon Quest Eleven still. Yeah, it's kind of a project, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm not that far in, though. I'm only at the, the circus part. Oh, okay, so, so you have met or you're going to meet Silvando. I just did, actually. Oh, he's cool. I love Savando. Savando's interesting. I was talking to somebody who's a native Japanese speaker, and they uh-huh. were saying that Silvando is very different in Japan, actually. Yeah, I think you were telling me something about that. Like, I, I don't know if he's if he's trans or, or what the story is. Uh, maybe genderqueer or oh, gender okay. nonconforming, because uh, in Japan, the character's name is Sylvia. I guess um, a lot of the people in the circus are also have, like, trans feminine names. Like, mm-hmm. there's a character who's named Alice but has a masculine name in the U.S. So, oh, I think, yeah, that, I think that's Dave, the, uh, the, the ship captain. Yeah, Dave is named Alice in uh, Japan, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and then I was talking to somebody else who's fluent in Japanese, a non-native speaker, uh-huh. and played it. And they, they didn't really think that... Like, they had observed that, but they hadn't really thought of them as, like, being trans-feminine or anything like that. So, I was like, huh, well, that's quite interesting. So, anyway, Silvano seems really cool, and now that I'm at that part, I'm, like, kind of keen to keep going. But I keep getting distracted by FIFA. (laughs) They should put some uh, some soccer into Dragon Quest. FIFA's just a really bad habit at this point. Like, it's, it's not the greatest game at the moment Mm -hmm. it feels kind of annoying uh especially since they released a new patch and like kind of mucked up the mechanics again i'm playing the the monetized ultimate team mode which makes me feel a little bit dirty even though i'm not actually spending any money on it right every time i get done with a prolonged session with fifa i'm like why am i doing this (laughs) why am i doing this to myself stop me before i kill again like i should be playing rpgs the, the the genre that's actually good yeah, I, I agree with you there. But then again, there's always that one game where, like, even if it's not that great, you kind of feel like sinking back into it for some reason. You can't help yourself. So, Nadia, what are you playing at the moment? Right now, I am playing, I suppose, you know, I can't talk too much about it because it's under embargo, but I can say I'm playing uh, Trails of Cold Steel 3. Mm, and very exciting. Uh, it, it, it is very much a Trails game, uh, which is good, because if you like Trails, you're probably going to want to play Trails of Cold Steel 3, and that's pretty much all I can say about it at the moment. But it is big, as usual. Um, I will say that there is a new card game within the game itself that is super addictive. Uh, its name escapes me right now, but I do know it's based on a card game that Falcom never released outside uh, of Japan, and it is quite a bit like Hearthstone, so... That, that's pretty fun. Uh, Trails has always had like a card game within it called Blades, 
But this is a lot more complicated than Blade, and it's a little more fun, too, I think. Speaking of card games, I was over at a friend's house not too long ago, uh-huh. and they had old triple triad cards, like the physical cards. Oh, wow. Like, didn't are, are those still sold at Square Store? Probably not, huh? I guess they were a promotional item from when the game originally came out. Wow, that would be really cool to have. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind having a couple of them, mostly for the characters. Yeah, yeah. So, That's awesome. Yeah, no, it was really cool. The the char- The art isn't... Uh, a lot of the monster art is actually the in-game monster art, so it's not as good, but the character art is actual art, so... That's pretty cool. I'd like to see that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess we'll be having our Trails of Cold Steel 3 review before too long. I've got a ton on my plate next week. I'm going to two, maybe three major events, one that requires me to actually travel down to Anaheim, and also, I'm going to be reviewing a one of the biggest games of the entire fall. So, Ooh. yeah, so I'm actually I'm a little nervous about it. Actually, it's going to be a tough one. Oh, I- I'm sure it is. I think I know what it is, but uh, mm. yeah, I-, I don't envy you. <laughs> I think a lot of people uh, can kind of glean what I'm talking about. So. Yeah, yeah. So I really wish luck. I was reviewing Outer Worlds. Like, I was originally on that list, but now I'm not because I it, there's too much overlap with my other review project. Yeah, it's good to have, like, if it's the game I think it is, you're going to want to have your your uh, plate clean for that. Though one of the things that I'm doing next week is I'm going to an Outer Worlds event, and I'm going to have Leonard Boyarski and the native the narrative director on the podcast. So Oh, cool. That's yeah. pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, so that'll be a, a nice little interview in the lead up to Outer Worlds. They've they've given us a ton of coverage, like almost too much coverage. You know that moment where they just keep asking, offering you the interviews, and you're like, "Well, I've already done that interview. Yeah. I'm trying to think of different <laughs> angles at this point." I got to think of new questions. Give me a second. <laughs> All right. So a little bit of housekeeping. Axel Bloodlord, uh, you should leave a review if you're enjoying the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Um, it really helps our visibility with those respective platforms to get good reviews. And plus, we enjoy reading them and being like, oh, thank you. Like, we we like hearing from our audience. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And follow US Gamer at all of the US Gamer channels. Nadia also runs a newsletter that goes out every single Wednesday. You can find the subscription information on the site. Nadia, what is the topic of this week's newsletter? I actually uh, talked a little bit about the PlayStation 5, which, as we know, got a sort of release date of 2020 holiday. Sorry, is it 2020 or 2021? Um, 2020. Holiday. Yeah, yeah holiday 2020. Year. Okay, yeah. So, you know, we don't know a lot about the system yet, like what what its expense will be, what its cost will be. But I was thinking, okay, what RPGs would you buy, like, if with the system on day one, if they were both available at the same time, like money would be no object, Wh- which games would make you do it? And um, so I listed a few. Uh, I-, I guess I'm going to have a problem if Square Enix says, oh, Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two is coming to, to the exclusive, time exclusive to the PlayStation 5. I was like, oh, well, geez, now I have a, now I have a problem. So that would be something. Everything's going to be coming out on PS5. I think the big question is whether uh, GTA 6 will actually be out on uh ps5 because that's been one of like the rumors floating around and if so that would be gigantic especially for a timed exclusive that would be absolutely huge because gta 5 still brings in a ton of money for them 
But Sony, at the same time, seems very intent on basically running back this current console generation in the next one, and I'm not sure if that'll go over super well. Like, what do you mean, exactly? Well, I think they're just going by the same playbook as before, where they're kind of leaning on exclusives. It's very like a traditional approach to how they're handling digital, whereas Xbox is going for... They're really pushing Game Pass. They're really pushing Mm -hmm. ideas like uh, cloud gaming and such. So they seem a little bit more ahead of the curve this time around. Yeah, Uh, uh, Microsoft learned a pretty hard lesson this generation. Well, that's the funny thing is that last generation, Sony went very conservative, very traditional, and Xbox went very avant-garde, theoretically, with Kinect and such, and it completely blew up in their faces. Yeah, it really did. But I, I think the subscription model this time is going to work a lot better for them. And if Sony doesn't have some kind of Game Pass at, right from the start, I don't know. Like, Microsoft might be able to push Scarlet as a much bigger deal. They might be able to. Um, it's also a matter of, this is something I was reading earlier this week, is just without the Xbox, uh, like, really making waves in Japan you're still going to get a lot of the, of course, the games that we talk about, JRPGs, on the Sony systems and probably Switch as well, or whatever Nintendo comes out with next. The other thing that's interesting about Sony right now is that they're going through a lot of different kind of upheaval, I should say. Uh-huh. Um, there are rumors about, well, there were layoffs in PlayStation Europe, I guess, and there's a lot of consolidation happening worldwide. Uh, Sean Layden just left. So you got to ask, like, who's going to be in charge and what is their vision going to be going forward? One of the discussions has been um, that maybe the executive Jim Ryan will be taking over. And Jim Ryan doesn't have the greatest reputation, mostly because while Sony loves him because he did a lot for Sony in Europe, I guess, especially during the PS3 era, he uh, was also maybe the guy who said, why would gamers want to play old games? Oh, dear. That's not a very good outlook at all. Yeah, he, he might be very staunch, uh, maybe maybe a little dogmatic about that kind of stuff. And so I wouldn't say that would necessarily bode extremely well. Yeah. Though, like, if you're looking purely from a numbers standpoint, yeah, maybe backwards compatibility doesn't add a ton except for good PR. Like, I'm willing to bet that maybe it's just something to add to Game Pass and a lot of people don't actually play those old Xbox 360 or Xbox games. But at the same time, like from a preservationist standpoint and just having these games available to play, I think that it can be, you know, really good. And it's disappointing, you know, when an executive just kind of turns their nose up at the history of the medium. Yeah, that's definitely the problem. Not the fact that... uh... I, I, don't, I really don't expect game uh, systems to be backwards compatible at this point because the HD uh, kind of remake slash revival uh, uh, push is so strong and so successful that, uh, you know, to be totally honest with you, I would rather play uh, remakes and re-releases than dig out my old games and, and put them on my system. But the point is, people still like old games, like to have them even if they don't play them. And you're right, uh, from a uh, preservationist standpoint, it is still extremely important. And to to say, oh, well, who cares about these old games anymore as a CEO is an extremely ignorant thing to say. Yeah, I think that the thing is, is that it's the difference in outlook between viewing games as a commercial product and viewing games as kind of a piece of creativity or, or a piece of art, as it were. 
And the whole games is art discussion is exhausting and boring. But uh, when you just boil it down to what is this thing that can make money for us, like that really shortchanges the hard work of a lot of artists and musicians and writers and designers and people who are really coming together to create this thing. And just because it's old doesn't necessarily mean it's out of date. So. Yeah, I agree. That's a very cynical sort of take to have. Uh, these are things that are created by people, like a whole teams of people, not just something that like a machine farts out one day. Yet. Indeed. So yeah, if you want to read our uh, newsletter, you should go and subscribe to it. It comes out every Wednesday. It includes a little bit of a th- op-ed from Nadia and also includes various RPG headlines. And it's always a good read. So go check it out. Okay. Okay, let's talk about Indivisible, Nadia. You reviewed it. You gave it a pretty good review. And it is currently out for, I think, PC? Is that where you played it? Uh, It is out for PlayStation 4. That's where I play it. It's out for PC. I think it's out for Xbox One. It is coming out for Switch sometime. I did not find a date. So I guess they're kind of working on making that a little more presentable to avoid a bloodstained incident, which sounds kind of grim, but it just means that... uh, when Bloodstained came out for the Switch, uh, it, it was not well formatted for the system. And speaking as someone who really loved pl- uh, Bloodstained on the PS4, it's, it's I think it's slowly getting to be better on the Switch. One day it'll be playable, but um, I haven't been keeping up with that, admittedly. Well, you said, Indivisible's unique blend of platforming and action-heavy monster fights will take some getting used to, but everything feels good once it clicks into place. It has some problems with this map and camera, but you'll be too busy marveling at its wonderful graphics to feel much of a sting, and you gave it a 4 out of 5. So I guess we should talk about, like, everybody just calls it Skullgirls meets Valkyrie Profile. Is that pretty accurate? Um, I'm going to say yes, but I haven't played Valkyrie Profile, so I don't know. But looking at screenshots and video of Valkyrie Profile, I would say it is pretty accurate. You have, um, if you put the battle system side by side, you, you see a lot of similarities where you have four people in your party, and each one is assigned to one of your buttons. And um, if you press the button, they do their attack. And of course, you can do combos by pressing up or pressing down as you attack. Uh, some are healers, some are attackers, some use magic, some are long-distance attackers. Uh, my favorite character is a shaman named Rad, uh, Razmi, who can kind of shoot fire from a long distance. But Ajna, the main character, for example, uses... Um, kind of close-up attacks, and so do other characters as well. So there are like something like 20 recruitable fighters, if not more. I know more are coming to uh, to the game. And each one has like a, a weird sort of fighting style that's a lot of fun, although I did kind of find my niche and I stuck to it for a while. It looks like they borrowed some of the platforming from Valkyrie Profile because one of the major things in Valkyrie Profile is being able to freeze enemies and then use that to get new to new parts of the stage. And it can be kind of complicated and frustrating. And it looks like that Indivisible also does that. Yes, it does. And it is a little bit complicated and frustrating sometimes. It's funny, the ability to freeze enemies and use them as platforms, that comes a little later in the game. But early in the game, uh, Ajna has an axe that you can use to, uh, for example, leap up, sink the axe into a wall, and from there, she does another leap automatically. And from there, she can kind of wall jump to the next wall. And that took a long time for me to really master, uh, especially since there is an encounter, again, fairly early in the game, where they have you do that, even though there's like uh, a monster like relentlessly firing projectiles at you. And I found that really frustrating. 
But strangely enough, as you go further into the game, the platforming gets easier because you get more skills. Like you get uh, the ability to jump higher with by kind of using this pole vault. You have the like ability to again like uh, shoot uh, hazardous walls and make them climbable. You can freeze enemies and use them as platforms. So yeah, the the platforming is is a little bit rough, especially since um, this is something I addressed in the review. The camera doesn't always cooperate. Sometimes it's too far off to the side. Sometimes it's too high up, and you kind of have to take leap of faith. So there are definitely some rough edges that uh, Lab Zero could stand to, to sand down, and I'm, I'm sure they will with future updates. Yeah, it looks like they did some stuff with... They expanded on the platforming quite a bit. For example, when you're dashing, uh, I guess your character's on fire or something, and they can <laughs> take out a lot of uh, enemies along the way just without having to fight them. Yeah, uh, Ashna kind of turns into this ogre thing, and she can dash into certain enemies. And uh, when it works out, it's really fun because she just kind of like racks up these like huge uh, damage points and just destroys it. Uh, so it doesn't work every time. Like sometimes it just serves as a first strike in a in an encounter. But uh, either way, it's a good it's a good ability to have. So one of the problems that I had with Valkyrie Profile was that the actual battle system could be enjoyable in some ways, but also a little repetitive and boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that the problem with Indivisible as well? I did not have a problem. I have seen other reviewers say, oh, it got a little bit boring, got a little bit repetitive. But I find that it was so fast-paced that I didn't really have time to get bored. And again, there are so many different fighters you can recruit, and they all have their different styles that um, I just never found myself getting fed up. Uh, like I had this one girl, I think her name was Kushi, and she's just this little tiny girl who has this huge eagle like rock thing that sits on her arm and she uses it to attack. And I just thought that, for example, was a lot of fun. And so if I ever got bored, that sure, I'd just, you know, switch out a character and see what they could do. But um, I-, I can't say I really got bored or found that the battles repetitive, but that's just me. I think the thing that I enjoyed about Valkyrie Profile was finding the right combo Mm-hmm. that would do the maximum amount of damage because in Valkyrie Profile, it would be like enemies would have shields, right? So you would have to break down their block guard. And then once you b- broke down their block guard, you could dizzy them and do a fair amount of damage. But it, if you just hacked at it and they were able to completely block you, that would be really bad. <laughs> yeah, uh, blocking and breaking shields is definitely a, a big, big part of uh, Indivisible. And it's funny, when I was playing the demo at one of the packages, I can't remember which one, uh, I had a really hard time learning how to break shields because I don't know about Valkyrie Profile, but to do it in indiv- Indivisible, you have to kind of do an up attack and then a down attack in succession, and that will break through the shield. Um, and I had a really hard time with that at first, but once I got the hang of it, it was a lot of fun. And uh, I guess combos probably matter a lot in Valkyrie Profile as well as they matter, matter a lot in Indivisible, so you can... It's a lot of fun to see, like, okay, how high of a combo can I get? And if you're just kind of sitting there wailing on an enemy, uh, just, you know, getting like a a 50-hit combo on them is is pretty cool. Yeah, that is a really satisfying thing. In Valkyrie Profile, I always liked being able to... I I would often equip the bow to Lenneth, Mm -hmm. and then I would... If I could... if they had the exploding arrows, if I recall correctly, it would knock enemies into the air, and if they were in the air, then it would tend to make them somewhat vulnerable. Also, magic could do a lot of damage if you did things, if if you did it right. Like, magic was, in fact, incredibly important, and your mage really made a huge difference. Yeah. Um, 
there are like certain attacks that, for example, can't be blocked. Um, so it's always good to have like, I, I don't know if there's like, I can really call it magic, just certain characters have attacks that are, you know, can go can bypass shielding. But I can definitely say that uh, some characters, well, most characters can juggle enemies. And there are some enemies that can only be damaged if they're being juggled. And those are a lot of fun because, like, you do have to pay attention to what you're doing, but at the same time, it's easy to also just ram a bunch of buttons and watch, you know, watch that tree fly or whatever you're you're massacring. The other thing was that an enemy would be doing a lot of damage to you and could theoretically knock out your party, but you could equip abilities like Guts, which would have a certain amount of uh, chance to revive your party automatically. And that ended up being an extremely important part of your strategy, because otherwise your party would just die. <laughs> was that a thing in Ind- Indivisible as well? Yeah, kind of. Uh, Ajna, um, as you fight, uh, there's a, a gauge that fills up. There's three levels to it. And uh, if you press, I think it's the R1 button, uh, you can use like you can use it so that some of your characters have like powered up attacks or, or healing abilities or something like that or any sort of extras. But in Ajna's case, if it's filled up to the maximum level and you press L and R, she will revive any down party members and also like really heal your characters for a lot. Although if you use it repeatedly, its effect becomes like more dilute. I like the I like the gal with the lantern and the tiger headscarf. <laughs> yeah, that's Rosmi. She's great. She has this like real monotone sort of voice and just you know doesn't care about things so much as setting these on fire. A girl uh, with a monotone voice sounds like a gal after my own heart. Oh, you'd probably like her a lot. She's a lot of fun. She's easily the funniest character in the game. And I, I like from the first day I saw her design, I just really liked it. So Valkyrie Profile had a really good story. Would you say Indivisible kind of matches up? Um, it's it's fine. Uh, definitely the it shines best when the characters are interacting with each other. Um, the overall story is, is fine. It's basically, you know, evil resurrecting to cleanse the world, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I think Ajna's an interesting character because she tends to run headfirst into trouble and doesn't really think about the consequences. She just wants to do good, and even doing good, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions and all that, and she can kind of make things worse. So I do kind of like seeing a hero who who screws up a lot. We actually have a an article about that exact thing about Ajna on our site if you want to look it up. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely more about the characters interacting with each other than the, the story itself. I think... Uh, from what you've described of Valkyrie Profile's story to me, I think that sounds a little more compelling. I'm going to go on a limb and say that the art is just okay. <laughs> I think, I, I think like, the art's really fantastic, and you really see it um, when you visit towns. Like, every locale you visit is inspired by a real-world, world, like, place. Like, you visit a town that's clearly supposed to be Bangkok. You visit another town that's supposed to be london except like instead of having like it's kind of a filthy horrible place but instead of having like rats in the street you have these little gremlins who kind of chew gears instead of cheese it's really awesome um yeah you just i just like was really taken by the each town but i will say that the kind of the caverns the dungeons for lack of a better term they too tend to get a little bit monotone i guess i was like looking at ajna and thinking that she looked like any other character that you might see in a free-to-play anime-inspired mobile game. Ouch. That's kind of ouch. <laughs> I mean, I guess, like, I think of Skullgirls as having this really remarkably excellent art. And maybe it's just not standing out to me a ton. 
though I'm looking at this one gal with these big glasses and she's got this kind of a weird scarecrow hat or something. And I like how she animates. She's all right. And the bot and the enemies seem to animate really well too. Yeah, the enemies uh, are well animated and, you know, for the most part, they're well suited for each of their environments. Um, but I think you're talking about, yeah, there's a girl named Honey, and or Ginseng, rather, and she has, like, this, li- this thing living in her hat named Honey. And she's, I didn't use her much because she's a healer, but she's very, very, very weak. So she kind of got regulated to the uh, the pile. So the thing with Valkyrie Profile and the reason that I think it really remains memorable to me was that it has this outstanding this really excellent structure and in some ways it could become a little tiresome in that so you spend a lot of time watching these really fantastic little vignettes uh, that are completely non-interactive but also often very dark and can be like quite heartbreaking and then you go into a dungeon so it's kind of going back and forth between the two and then in between you can also do some exploration though Uh, You have only a certain amount of time, so you got to, like, keep it very targeted, as it were, uh, usually to figure out how you should be progressing. And then I've already talked about in past podcasts, uh, there is a secret ending that involves a lot. It's pretty unintuitive to get to it, but that's kind of okay, because the whole idea is that you are Lenneth, and you are trying to break out of being a machine, as it were, that's completely under the control of Odin, which really speaks to, it almost reads as a critique of critical pathing as well in RPGs. And I've just always really enjoyed that. And I've seen games try to replicate Valkyrie Profile, but they've never captured those singular elements. And I'm wondering if Indivisible does that literally at all. Um, it, it's hard for me to say because, again, I didn't play Valkyrie Profile, but from what you describe, I would say not really. It's not necessarily a very dark game. It has moments, of course, but it's it's definitely one of those games where the characters are always quipping back and forth, and someone always has something funny to say, and it, it's not the kind of game that's going to make, where the story's going to make you think really deeply or anything like that. It's just fun and enjoyable, and it's a nice romp. Um, that's the thing. It's like, it looks like you're pretty typical rpg from a story standpoint like you're starting out in a small village then you know people are kind of joining your party you're running through a lot of environments that you would see in a lot of different rpgs which it's fine i I guess the the hook is the art style and then kind of capturing a lot of the original spirit of valkyrie profile i think just the problem is that it's capturing the parts of valkyrie profile i didn't care about (laughs) (laughs) yeah by the sounds of it um the themes are not there the themes that like really are what that sound like they make valkyrie profile really really interesting so i guess the all there is to say is hey square enix will you please release valkyrie profile (laughs) on the switch i mean i'd love to play it Yeah, the battle system of Valkyrie Profile was actually one of its worst parts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the part that, I think that's the part that uh, Lab Zero basically grabbed before everything else. Because the party building was all right, and Mm -hmm. then attaching the weapons and the customization, but then when it came to the actual battles, it was dial, dial up your combos, keep doing them, trying each time get up to the point where you could uh, have your super attack, uh, chain the super attacks together, and eventually you'll win. And there are some bosses that are somewhat more difficult than others, especially Lazar Veleth. 
But you can also break out things like the holy gem and, oh, holy crap, you killed his bodyguard. You killed the hell out of his bodyguards. And then he just, then you're just keep using super attacks back and forth over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, I, I guess that's more or less the way to describe Indivisible's battles. Like, not not too overwhelming. I did have, like, a couple of problems because they got obtuse. Because what happens is you enter, there are many cases where you enter a boss battle and you fight as normal, and then it kind of takes you out of the boss battle to this platforming section, and then you have to do something else to re-engage the battle. And there was this one boss, the Serpent Queen, who really gave me a hard time because I had no idea what to do to re-engage the battle with her. She would float above me and shoot me with lightning, and I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do? And then it was just by chance I realized, oh, you have to stand in this platform she's drawing power from and kind of use your own power to draw her her power, 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 back into you. And that way she can't recharge her shield or shoot lightning at you. So figuring that out was just, what am I supposed to do? Because there was no hint, there was no, like, prompt, nothing like that. And yeah, so I will say that it's it's not a perfect game. It's just enjoyable. It's, it's fun. Uh, I, I had a good time with it. But what, is it going to be one of my games of the year? I don't know. It's a very busy year. Yeah, well... Not actually. It's not actually that busy a year. Oh, for RPGs Every, it is. Everything keeps getting pushed back until next year. Well, that's good. I can have a I can have a good list this year and a good list next year. So you said that it had some performance issues on PS4, or, or is it just a Switch thing? Oh no, it's it's not on Switch at all yet. Um, but right, I did that was notice. the thing. Is like you're speculating that it's being delayed because of that. Yeah, because the PS4 it was nothing too severe, but I did notice some like chuggy bits, some slowdown here and there and it's uh if you're if the game's having problems running on the ps4 well who knows how it's going to run on the switch so i figure lab zero is probably taking their time making sure everything's optimized i mean better to have a a delayed good port than a a crummy port now so does it have a good soundtrack it does it's by secret amana's uh, composer oh um and it's really nice to hear uh just those woodwinds again i feel a little bad kind of being like well this game's on valkyrie profile because it's like <laughs> what is right there you and go a lot of people haven't played valkyrie profile and won't necessarily care and are looking for kind of a recommendation as to whether indivisible is actually worth playing and it sounds like to you maybe the the graphics alone might be just worth and the sheer variety of characters that you can recruit might ultimately make it worth it yeah, I would say so. Um, it's just a good, fun RPG. I think it's about 20-ish hours. It's not, like, going to keep you occupied forever. Uh, God knows I have like still have, like, Dragon Quest Eleven S to keep me busy for 100 hours, and I'm about to start Switcher, so that'll be another 100 hours of my life. Uh, so if you just want, like, a good, fun RPG that'll take you, you know, not your entire life to play, Indivisible is a good choice. Yeah, I, I think that like looking at it, spending a bunch of time watching the gameplay and everything. Uh, I think I would have the most fun with the player recruitment. And I'm kind of hoping that the battle system is a little bit deeper than it looks. Uh, it looks fun, at least. Yeah, it is fun. It is fun to play. I really had a good time with it. Um, I can't, Like I said, I don't think I could say I, felt it, I found it repetitive, but that's just my opinion. I've been kind of waiting for it on Switch, but I think part of the problem is I actually have a lot to play on Switch in the moment, and... I 
Like, Switcher 3 is, or Switcher is coming out next week, and you were going to play some of it for the podcast and finally get started. But you're also playing Trails of Cold Steel 3. You're also playing uh, Dragon Quest XI-S. Uh, I mean, there's so many games coming out. There's so many RPGs coming out. I mean, Nino Kuni just came out as well. Yeah, and I want to get back to that because I started that. So I'm kind of wondering, like, if you're an RPG fan, does Indivisible manage to claw its way above any of those games? for people who haven't played them yet. And it's kind of like, well, I mean, RPGs are a big investment. And if you're going to play only one, maybe play a different one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's what I'll say overall, because, um, God, it, it, there, yes, it's a good game, but there are so many great games out there right now. Uh, some great RPGs. If someone said to me, hey, Nadia, should I, if I have money for either Indivisible or I have money for Dragon Quest XI S, which one should I buy? I'm going to say, oh, Dragon Quest Easy. Uh, but this is a little different. Ultimately. They are definitely different, but yeah, but I don't know. It, it, it's definitely it's like warped. a taste thing, right? It's like, it, it totally well, do you is. want more of an action kind of platformy game that's like easy breezy? We'll get you through twenty hours. Maybe get indivisible. If you're looking for a very classical JRPG with a surprisingly dark story and wonderful character designs and you're willing to really put in the work with it. I mean, perhaps Dragon Quest XI. Uh, yeah, there's also the matter of it's coming to the Switch someday. Maybe wait until then if you're, you know, look what happened. If you waited for Dragon Quest on the Switch, you were rich rewarded for it. So you, you can wait. You can wait for a sale. You can also, um, there's a good chance that if you're an RPG fan, you probably back the game on Kickstarter and just look for your code in, the, in your mailbox, I suppose. <laughs> I didn't put, I didn't back it, so I guess I'm a bad fan. Well, I didn't back it either. It's okay. I'm actually very bad about backing Kickstarters. I just <laughs> Or perhaps you're them. good. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. I mean, Maybe you shouldn't crowdfund. I do back people on Patreon, but yeah. mostly because those are creators who are creating a thing that I want and I want to support them. Yeah, like I, like, I, I give to certain Patreons as well. So yeah, I, I kind of want to play, I'm kind of waiting for Indivisible to come out on Nintendo Switch. But even then, I've got kind of a backlog going on because I've got Dragon Quest Eleven, and I've got, uh, oh god, what else? Oh, I've been playing The Goose Game. Oh, I've been playing that as well. Honk, honk. Honk, honk. Oh. And I've been playing, and I just got a code for Link's Awakening, so I'm going to be installing oh, that. Cool. I'm curious to see what you think about that. Because I got invited onto a Retronauts about it, even though I've already been on a Retronauts about Link's Awakening. But whatever. <laughs> Have another one. Yeah, more Link's Awakening Retronauts. Maybe this is more of a direct comparison with the Switch game versus the uh, the original Game Boy Color game. So, I'm actually curious to see, like, when you get to Indivisible, what you think about it because you have played Profile. You you know what it's about. I mean, honestly, I'm watching the gameplay and it looks fun but it's also making me want to play valkyrie profile again <laughs> that's fair that is definitely fair which every time i get into valkyrie profile i'm kind of st stunned by the art direction and how dark it can be and how original it still feels mm -hmm. uh, yeah i definitely want to play it but it's also a real investment because the opening alone can take an hour to get through because there's the whole part where Leneth is waking up and then you're going, you're seeing one of the original origin stories for the people who join your party and you have to go through all of that. 
And then finally you get to a dungeon and that takes between 30 and 45 minutes. And so I can see why a lot of people end up bouncing off it. Yeah. um, Indivisible. I got to say, like it literally like starts you from moment one, you go, you wake up, you join your father for some lesson and then your village is on fire and you're chasing a bad guy and you have begun. The other problem with Valkyrie Profile right now is it's on mobile, it but the mobile version is not optimal, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And also, yeah, it's on PSP, but again, not extremely optimal because it was stretched out. Um, yeah. And what they really need to just release it is just release it as a PS1 game, you know, on Nintendo Switch or something. Yeah, and uh, heck, if they just released it as a PS1 game, I could get it on my Vita. Yeah. As a classic. That's the other thing. It's just, I would like access to this game. It feels like all of the other Holy Grails of RPGs have come out, but not that one. If if it had come out on PS1 Classic, that that alone would have sold me on a PS1 Classic. Yeah, like... Well, that that I easily would have bought it for that, just because it's such a, a hard game to find anywhere else. But uh, yeah, if it could just, it's I'm not even looking for like a remake or a revamp or anything. Just give me the game on the on like Vita. I can do it. I can play it. Well, heck, I have the original disc, so I can just pop it into my PS3 <laughs> and play it there. Boo! Yeah, that's not me. Yeah, I the original disc. You know, they're about seventy, eighty dollars. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, I mean. If you really care, you can get it. Uh, it's a lot more if you have the jewel case with the, uh, the the instruction booklet and all of that. So, sorry, Indivisible, we're giving you short shrift. We're mostly using this as an opportunity to talk about Valkyrie Profile. We can talk about both. We have talked about both. We, Last we did a question. Comparison. How exactly do you recruit the characters? Uh, in some cases, you just meet them. Uh, in some cases, like, uh, there was one instance where, uh, there's a woman who plays a lute, and it's like, I didn't never really use her because no bards in my party allowed. Um, Why are you she- racist against bards? <laughs> because Edward from Final Fantasy IV gave me, it just traumatized me, being so useless. Okay. Well, but, bard uh, hater right here. I'm a total bard hater, but I found her by, like, she was complaining about her loot being broken, so I found some items for her that she needed to repair it, and she's like, oh, cool, I'll join your party. So you, ha- it can be, like, through quests, or it can be just, like, you run into someone, or like, hey, hey, I want to team up, sure. Okay, so it's not like, are, are there a lot of secret characters? There are several, and there are more coming, because uh, you're looking at, like, a lot of crossover stuff. Uh, like, they're going to have Transistor from uh, from the uh, super giant games I, i'm i'm thinking that's gonna be really cool oh okay that's a that sound cool yeah and shantae as well okay well that is our review of indivisible which is now out on pc ps4 and will eventually be out for the nintendo switch general consensus is it's an easy breezy kind of fun action rpg where you're recruiting characters has a really nice art style uh, platforming is kind of fun. Obviously, it's kind of billed as a spiritual successor to Valkyrie Profile, but there's a lot to Valkyrie Profile that's extremely hard to recapture in an easy breezy uh, anime-inspired game that looks a little bit like a free-to-play mobile RPG, which is mean to the Skullgirl people, but whatever. <laughs> that is me. <laughs> and perhaps uh, there are other RPGs that if you haven't gotten to them, maybe you should play those first. But if you want to capture just even a tiny little bit of that Valkyrie profile spirit well here it is and it's always nice to support projects like this right 
I agree. Um, I, I like supporting indies when I can, especially indies that really stand out like that with the, with the art style. For sure. Okay, folks, we're now moving on to the mailbag, so don't go away. Okay, Nadia, last week we talked about the kind of RP, the consoles that were in between the Super Nintendo and the PlayStation uh, that had kind of weird RPG legacies themselves. We talked about the 3DO, we talked about the Jaguar, we talked about the Neo Geo, and we talked about the CDI a little bit, because CDI doesn't really have um, an RPG legacy. Somebody defended the Zelda games on it, by the way. Oh, really? Um... Yeah, they called them perfectly serviceable Metroidvanias. Which are mm. they Metroidvanias? No, nothing. Not really. I, I mean, I, <laughs> maybe a little bit. Like once in a while, someone comes by and defends them. But uh, I don't know if you can't control a, ca- a game very well. I, I don't see what there is to defend. <laughs> All right, but uh, a couple of people wrote in with their own memories of owning these particular consoles. Mm-hmm. Carlton said uh, owned a 3DO. Apparently, uh, they got it for Christmas because it was dirt cheap. I loved my 3DO, even though I really wanted an SNES. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, and 3DO was cheaper, apparently? Apparently they played Lucien's Quest in the early 2000s. It was a fun and interesting RPG that if I had played before Final Fantasy VII, it would have blown me away. I found the story interesting, the characters charming, and the graphics nice to look at. The one glaring problem with the world game was the world map. Every step you took was followed by a brief black screen, like someone was taking a picture of each frame and sending it to my TV. Aside from this, Lucian's Quest was a great RPG. Not my best, but one playing even today. One more note, there were two more RPGs, quote-unquote, on the 3DO. The first was Robinson's Requiem, which is an open-world game, much like an early Elder Scrolls game. I never made it far in this game since I would immediately fall off a cliff and break my leg or contract a disease. <laughs> Ow. How do you contract a disease immediately? <laughs> is, is syphilis airborne in that place or something? <laughs> well, you get infected, right? Oh, okay, but that's just scary. You like, you take, oh, I'm out of my great quest. Oh, no, I'm dead of a disease. That, that's just, like, frightening. The other was Guardian War, which was a basic tactics RPG. It has an awesome good-bad intro and didn't overstay its welcome. So Guardian War was by the same people who did Lucian's Quest. And I actually did look that up and do a little research on it. And it looked really dated compared to Lucian's Quest. Uh, it, it did not look good. I think I read about it. Wasn't It, it was a tactical RPG, right? Yeah, it was kind of a tactics RPG, but it was fully 3D versus uh-huh. Lucien's Quest, which was more of a isometric with sprites and everything. And guess which one holds up a lot better? Probably the um, little tactical quest thing. Perhaps the one that actually has good graphics, which was oh. Lucien's Quest versus Guardian War, which did not have good graphics at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Neo Geo, uh, somebody pointed out that Neo Geo had crossed swords, which was kind of sort of not really an RPG. So it was an arcade game from, and it's like punch out in that you're behind the back of the character, but instead of punching out large ethnic stereotypes, you are, uh, fighting dragons and stuff. That's kind of cool. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, I always loved like the, uh, Tower of Doom and Shadow over Mastara which aren't technically RPGs, but they are as RPG as a arcade game is going to be. So, yeah, I appreciate games like that. There was also a sequel for Neo Geo CD called Crossed Swords 2. 
Uh, and that one had multiple classes, like dancer and such, and there are also multiple paths. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. it looks pretty at the very least. I love, I love how detailed the sprite art is. Yeah, Neo Geo like sprite art is unparalleled as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Okay, and somebody actually owned a Jaguar as well. Oh, congratulations. Uh, Matt Williams says, I was one of the apparent few who fell for that clever Atari marketing and somehow convinced my parents to get me a Jaguar for Christmas. You're right, that controller is terrible, but I wanted to shed some light on the additional number pad style buttons. Most games didn't make use of them, but a few games came with the plastic overlays that slipped in over the buttons. They had the game-specific button mappings printed on them so they could be minimally functional. I can barely remember which games I had for the system, much less which utilized the additional buttons or in what way. So, super effective. (laughs) (laughs) That actually sounds, again, that sounds very nostalgic because so many of those old systems had the overlays that went on those old controllers or on the TV itself, like... God, like the earliest systems that you get for your home, uh, for your home was like, oh, here's, it's hockey, but in, you're just playing pong. But if you put the overlay over your TV, you you're like controlling two goalies. So yeah, that's pretty cool actually. It's funny because I, so I did my video game shopping back in the day, mostly at Target and at mm. Funko Land when it was still Funko Land, and at and I only ever saw like Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis stuff, right? I sort of feel like. If you wanted one of, like, the 3DO or the Jaguar or the Neo Geo, you basically had to go up to the clerk at a Funko Land or a GameStop and go, I want a 3DO, and they would look around and press the button to go into the forbidden (laughs) section and then pull it out and blow, like, a thick layer of dust and unlock the chain, uh, remove the curse from it, and then go, here you are. We don't have any games for it. (laughs) These predate stainless steel, so you can't get them wet. (laughs) And it's the same with like the Jaguar. I'm, I may have seen it in in discount bins, maybe, but I don't really remember seeing it on the shelf or like any marketing for it. I just saw it being mentioned in game magazines. Now that you mention it, I can't remember ever seeing uh, a Jaguar or a 3DO or one of those like mysterious middle systems on the shelf anywhere. Um, it's funny up here, uh, EB and and those kind of st- uh, you know game-centric stores were kind of a latecomer, so I got all my games from a store called Gamerama, which is still in Toronto. It still operates. I still know the owner. Um, and I don't remember ever seeing, like, the 3DO or anything there. It was always just, you know, Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Genesis. Uh, I got the N64 from him. So, yeah, I don't know where they would come from. I guess you're right about the secret button. I guess if you were... I, I think stuff like the Neo Geo in particular were intended for gaming enthusiasts who were older and had a lot more disposable income and were just looking for something that went beyond the kind of traditional experience where it's like, yes, I, but a lot of them played PC games is the thing. That's true. Yeah. And I think you're right about the Neo Geo as well. I could see that being the kind of thing where uh, you would go a little bit out of your way to get it because it was expensive and its games were expensive. But you know, you knew what you wanted, and Neo Geo knew that it wasn't trying to market something as big as Nintendo or Sega, so I could see why it would be a little more specialized. I'm imagining a single person in their 20s who has a job and a lot of disposable income, and they read Die Hard Game Fan, and and they're an anime fan in the early to mid-90s, and they want to get a Neo Geo. That, that's the person yeah. I'm envisioning. 
yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And they have all that disposable income. And they probably, maybe they have a little brother. And the little brother brings all his friends over to see this Neo Geo. And you're like, wow, this guy's so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of those guys. Uh, somebody was also pointing out that with the 3DO, one of the problems that it was kind of facing was that uh, it was stuck in between consoles and PCs. So consoles like the Super Nintendo were relatively cheap and geared toward kids and maybe early teenagers, whereas PC was geared more to toward, you know, kind of adults, maybe in their 20s and even early 30s, right? Yeah. So yeah. the point is that the 3DO, for anybody who had this disposable income for a 3DO, would probably just go a little further and get a PC. Like if they had 700 bucks to drop on a game system, they might go a little bit further and just get a PC. Yeah, it actually is funny. kind of reminds me of the Stadia today. Like, what is this for? Because anyone who wants, anyone who has specs that high that are necessary, the, the specs necessary to play Stadia uninterrupted is probably going to get a, a good gaming PC anyway. They probably already have it. Now, PC gaming, though, in the 90s sucked because <laughs> if so you I wanted hear. to get a top-end PC, it was like $3,000 minimum. And that yeah. thing would be out of date in a year. Yeah, and I don't think they were easy to upgrade all the time. There was a certain point where eventually graphics cards and such could be upgraded, but in the mid-90s, like, say, 95, 96, not as much. Yeah, um, I have uh, a 486 that was literally impossible to upgrade because it's an old compact that has the monitor kind of fused to the hard drive. You can't open it up. Yeah, I remember a friend of mine got a... So my friend did the Make-A-Wish, and they got a Pentium 133 or something like that. And it was almost instantly useless. Oh, no. But it was a Make-A-Wish. Yeah. I got That's a Pentium. Sad. I had a Pentium 200 for much of the later, latter 90s, and X-Wing versus TIE Fighter was practically a slideshow on it. <laughs> my first, uh, like, I, I worked all summer to get, like, a Pentium 2 or 1. I can't remember even what it was, but it had like two gigs of hard drive space and i was like wow i'll never fill that up i know right two gigs yeah. it, nobody <laughs> could live at that speed <laughs> we're in the future man even like starcraft kind of chugged on it like blizzard games ran on it better than most because blizzard even then kind of understood the power of accessibility and across a wide variety of specs but starcraft could take forever to load oh yeah good so yeah pc gaming was uh not that accessible uh, God, even today, when you need it, when you need a driver, your your computer just automatically downloads it. You don't even know. Back then, you had to like pray to God you found the CD with the driver on it. <laughs> All right, so some more mailbag questions. This is one's from Earl Gray, uh, and they ask, "What do you think about adding super easy or kids modes in RPGs?" My three and five year old nieces have devoured the Switch demo for Dragon Quest Eleven, but I'm worried about getting them the full game because I'm not sure that they would be able to keep up with the complexity of the systems. Do you think a JRPG like DQ11 would benefit from a kids mode to help to broaden the appeal? Or do kids just need to get good and power through? Thanks again. <laughs> so this is what I would propose. I'm not a parent. I mm-hmm. do have friends who do have uh, I do have friends who do have kids and still play video games. I would propose that rather than trying to find an RPG, a hundred hour RPG that a five-year-old can play, perhaps play with them as uh, as the parent and work with them together and help them figure out uh, the systems and such and help them grasp the more complicated stuff, you will bond with them as a parent and they won't be completely at sea. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I actually know a few people who ha- who are playing Dragon Quest with their kids, and it is a even though it has its darker moments, it's still a pretty fun game to play with your kid. It's not like going to to shock you or anything like that. Um, and if they did fine with the demo, I could see them latching on to the rest of the game just fine because systems wise, it doesn't change that much. It does get a little more difficult, but uh, it, it's not too bad. And that's a big long demo, so if they manage to finish that they'll probably be okay, but it's definitely still a good game to play alongside your kids. But as for the basic, like, kind of question with kids modes versus easy modes, if there's one thing I just cannot bother, I cannot be arsed to get mad about, it's the concept of easy modes in games. I just cannot commit any sort of mental or physical energy to form even much of an opinion over the matter, because to me it's like, sure, if you don't force me to play this easy mode, and it's there. I don't care. It's not hurting me. It, it doesn't. I, I guess you can go on about oh the integrity of the game, the integrity of the vision, the integrity of this, this and that. I just do not care. Um, I am very much the kind of person who thinks gaming is for everybody, and you don't really know how an easy mode is going to to help someone else. Uh, it could be their mobility isn't very good, so an easy mode helps them with that. It could be something as simple as that, and. So if it's there, even to just help that one person who who cannot move that well, sure, great. I'm glad it's there. I just, I just cannot get angry about it. Well, this goes back to the whole Sekiro thing and the Dark Souls thing, right? It's just funny is that. that everybody says oh, Dark Souls is the ultimate in hard games, and well, actually, if you know how to manipulate the systems properly, you can completely cheese that game and beat it without any problem. <laughs> uh, of course, yeah. but. Uh, Sekiro was explicitly built with experts in mind, I guess, and beating that game is hard. It's really hard. But I think a lot of the backlash comes from stems from the fact that when Demon's Souls originally came out in 2009, 2010, there was a real trend of blockbuster games being easy to the point of just being completely nothing, like being dr- extremely shallow extremely not that great because they were shooting for some kind of mainstream market, right? Uh, And then out of nowhere, Demon's Souls comes out and it just completely goes against the grain of the popular trends at the time. And it felt like an old school kind of thing. And you could celebrate the fact that it was a really hard game, right? And then that kind of kernel of hard but fair somehow translated into a genuinely toxic kind of movement among gamers which can be you know broken down into get good right get good yeah where yeah there's a real gatekeeperiness to it where people are saying don't don't get involved in my hobby if you can't hang right yeah yeah and but gaming was kind of a different i know that the the time period you're referring to which was um i guess the we thought everyone thought oh okay gaming is for it wasn't the Wii. i'm talking about blockbuster shooters which okay where the design sense changed that's like well this game cost 100 million dollars to make so we need the biggest possible audience to come with it and so we are going to make the campaign trivial you're just as long as you can breathe you can beat this damn campaign (laughs) (laughs) it reminds me of those like kind of those uh chants you say against schools to like insult them like universities but yeah i see what you think i see what you're getting at so part of me is going i don't i i think that there is actually a strong tradition in gaming of being kind of a show-offiness right 
where people are getting high scores, like high scores are at the very core of it, being able to cool do cool tricks and everything. Um, and a lot of Twitch and YouTube, frankly, is built on that. The notion that either you're an elite player who can do incredible things in these games uh, through speed running or competition or whatever, or you have just have a really great personality. <laughs> yeah. So like it or not, that kind of elitism is maybe embedded in the very culture of gaming and it's hard to get rid of. Uh, by the same token, I think really clever developers can find ways to, you know, make a game that, on the one hand, you can do awesome show-offy things in them, but then also, if people don't want to bother with that shit, they can just enjoy the game. Yeah, I think uh, Celeste is usually held up as a good example of that. Yes. Uh, which is like, if you want to absolutely kill yourself, you can get every strawberry in that game, Um on the other hand, if you just are having a, a terrible time with a certain section in the game, you can just pass it and, and maybe come back to it later. So, yeah, that, that's a kind of balance I like to see. Yeah, I think just people get really dogmatic about Sekiro and Dark Souls in particular because, A, those communities are a little bit toxic, and B, mm -hmm. because they were the games that made it cool to have a hard game again. So Yeah, yeah, that I understand, but um, it's still... D the the short answer is uh, easy modes in games do not offend me at all. In fact, I think Trails of Cold Steel has five difficulty levels. So I, I went with normal because I usually go with normal in any case, but the option to just quote-unquote sit there and enjoy the story and play as, as little as, as you need to or want to, I think that's a good option to have. If a, I'm just going to say that if a game developer wants to make a game that's really balls hard and... Uh, is there to be conquered? Whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, they can much. do it. It's their it's their creative decision. But oh, absolutely. Let us let us not turn this into a really exhausting controversy. I'm a little sick of it, actually. <laughs> Every time it comes up, I'm like, oh god, here we go again. Uh, on the as for Earl Grey's question, uh, I, I think the upshot of all that is play play games with your kids. It, yeah, it's, it's always a, fun to play games. Don't with your kids. don't don't just leave them alone to kind of noodle away at it by themselves. It's a great opportunity to bond with them. Uh, my friend who has a five, well, she was four at the time, uh, played through all of Pokemon Let's Go together, and they had an incredible time. So Yeah, yeah, that's really cute and fun. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So uh, Vic's Video Game Collection asks, uh, I've been listening to Axe of the Blood God for a while, and it's a great show, but I'm not an uh -oh. RPG fan. What? Gasp. Oh, that's, that's interesting. How do you find us? Hi. The Blood God is like, what? <laughs> Qua? Well, maybe they like Retronauts and or uh, kind of funny. I'm not sure. Ah, that's fair. Especially not the turn-based games of the 90s. I did try FF7 because I was a PS1 owner, and it was required of us. But I lost interest mm -hmm. when I got out of Midgar. Then I rented Quest 64, and that was all she wrote. Oof. Oh, no. Well, that's oh, your problem no. right there. Oh, that's not so good. Not, not <laughs> no. Quest 64. I guess we'll be talking about that when we get to the 32-bit slash 64-bit age soon oh, in the console RPG quest. What games, say a top three, would you recommend for someone whose curiosity is piqued but is intimidated by the vast RPG landscape? Well, Vic's video game collection, it sounds like you're not a big fan of turn-based games, and mm -hmm. that's okay. We all have our different tastes. Uh, there are games that I don't really like. I don't like puzzle games, actually. Yeah, I'm, um, you know what? I, I am not a huge fan of Tetris. What? See, I, see, puzzle, I'm thinking more like, 
environmental puzzle solving versus a game like Tetris, which is just pure spin the blocks and like fit them together, kind of a logic thing. I, guess. I don't hate it by any means, but it's just uh, I don't get the same rush from it that a lot of people mm. do. But you're right. Everyone has their own sort of tastes. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, Vic, I would say that perhaps you would be more interested in a game like uh, The Witcher 3, which is coming out on Nintendo Switch next week and is more of an open world action game. Uh, conversely, a game like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which, again, is more like an open world action uh, action game, but has very strong RPG elements, I, sh- uh, I, sh- I should say. So it's not as much of a kind of traditional turn-based JRPG as it were. Yeah, um, I was going to say it definitely sounds like you might be more, might be better suited for the action RPG. Uh, of course, you've probably already played Zelda's, but that's a good example. Zelda's uh, not I- an RPG! I still say it's an action RPG. I, every time we I write about Zelda, I check off, I check off a little action There's RPG. There's no role thing. playing. <laughs> okay, okay, but here here's a good answer then. Um, if you are not against anime tropes and stuff like that, uh, Ease Eight is a great game. Uh, it's for it is on the Switch, but I find it doesn't run very well on the Switch. It runs just beautifully on PC and and uh, PlayStation Four though. And that's another action RPG that does actually have RPG elements in it. Uh, a lot of level building, a lot of crafting. I really enjoyed my time with it. You might as well. Falcom's RPGs in general are very good, solid RPGs. Uh, we talked about Trails. Trails is still turn-based, but it has a very unique battle system that I find is a lot more interactive than the usual, say, Dragon Quest turn-based stuff. So you might want to check out some of Falcom's stuff. Uh, definitely Ease 8, though. A Mass Effect. Yeah, there you go. Mass yeah. Effect. Yeah, the Mass Effect trilogy. Maybe not Andromeda. Because, I mean, ultimately, Mass Effect 1, not as much. Uh, In fact, even though we put Mass Effect on the top 25 RPGs of all time list, Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not altogether down with, like, hardcore RPG elements, consider perhaps doing the Mass Effect motion comic and then playing Mass Effect 2 based uh, from there because Mass Effect 2 is a little more accessible. Uh, it's It's a lot closer to your traditional third-person action shooter but the rpg elements are found in the the choices that you make and such and the characters that you recruit and ultimately it's an outstanding game so if you're looking for that kind of crossover point mass effect 2 can be really good and then if you're looking for a 16-bit jrpg that's pretty accessible maybe secret of mana yeah secret of mana is also a a good choice it's a little bit buggy a little bit weird sometimes (laughs) but um i still loved it uh, I really, really wish they would take the iOS version of that game and put it on Switch instead of giving us the SNES version every single time. As for turn-based uh, RPGs that are really easy to start with, Pokemon, I think, is yeah. a big one. Yeah, Pokemon's extremely accessible. Uh, of course, we just got Dragon Quest 1, 2, and 3 on Switch, um, but those, those are might pretty be a little old-fashioned. Old yeah. A friend of mine um, actually, uh, like, we were talking about Dragon Quest, and they said they hadn't really played any of them. Uh, they had played the original <laughs> on yes. recommendation from somebody on mobile and actually beat it. <clears throat> and they're like, well, there was a lot of grinding in that one. And I was like, I propose that you play Dragon Quest V. I'm like, that's yeah. the one. That's the one that you should start with. And he's like, all right. So he just like downloaded the mobile version. So it's still a good port, believe it or not. It's fine. Yeah. I think the port's fine. I don't. Yeah. I think some people were complaining about the art style, but the art style didn't seem that bad to me. 
No, I think they're complaining about the uh, the art style for the new Switch games, like Dragon Quest Three, like the way the kind of the hand drawn enemies over the sprite based backgrounds, which is a little bit weird. But I think we discussed this last episode; was not nearly as hideous as um, Final Fantasy Five and Six. So there you have it: uh, Secret of Mana, Pokemon, Mass Effect, Witcher Three, uh, all, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey. All good choices if you're looking to break into RPGs. And you're a little intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, Benjamin Molusky asks, So I've been playing Final Fantasy thirteen for the first time, though I've owned all three games for years, and I'm trying to understand all the hate toward it. Sure, the first game had some flaws, though the story was good, and I still sunk 60 hours into it. FF13-2 is significantly better, and Lightning Returns was fairly well-received. Looking forward to it. Where do you come down to it overall, and further, its unique battle system? Nadia, do you have any opinions on thirteen? I do not. I have not played 13. In fact, I thought that uh, Lightning Returns was the same game as Final Fantasy 13 2, or whatever they called it. Nope, totally different. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. It's like a 3D Valkyrie profile. It's really weird. Oh, that's Lightning Returns? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I haven't played any of the games at all. And in fact, Trias was heavily involved in Lightning Returns creation, which is why oh. perhaps it's kind of an odd duck. Hmm. Interesting. I think that Final Fantasy 13 is one of the weakest Final Fantasy games. And not an amazing RPG overall. Yeah, I think um, even though I haven't played the games, that's the opinion I hear most in uh, the universe. So, I mean, if you look at the cast, I would say Saz is easily the best and most interesting character. Uh, He's the one who has the chocobo chick living in his afro. That makes him the best character automatically. I mean, let's face it. He's a dad. He has a kid. I think he's the most relatable and the most interesting yeah, Final Fantasy has some good dads, I have to say. Except for Jack, he's a real deadbeat, but yeah. I'm trying to remember a lot of the other characters. Um, they're not that memorable to me. There's one who's kind of like... <laughs> a dude with the white hair and the bandana. Yeah, I think he can be summarized as in the line Oriwa Hiroda, which is, I am a hero. Is is his name Vanilla or something? No, it's Vanille. And she's a... Um, She's your kind of cute, your typical cute anime girl trope. And then there's okay. Fang. Fang is all right. And Fang she has is, this Australian yeah. accent. Why? Yeah. And then Lightning was literally designed as Girl Cloud. <laughs> <laughs> but Cloud, I don't know. Cloud goes through some really interesting character development. I think a lot of people overlook that. Does Lightning go through any character development? A, a little bit. So her okay. whole thing is... Um, she is feeling responsibility as a big sister. Oh, okay, that's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, and I guess she's dealing with sacrifice and such, but she, she's not that interesting of a character. She's just a good character design. She does have an interesting design. I know she she hawked, like, Louis Vuitton for a while there. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, Lightning could be anybody that Square Enix wanted her to be. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like... As a malleable, when you're such a malleable character who's going through so many weird changes, you're not really a character at all. You're just kind of an empty vessel, kind of a mannequin. And that's and then and the same can be said for the rest of the game. Like, there's no cohesion to the world whatsoever. It's just a series of environments that are kind of cobbled together. Uh, it takes way too long to get through the tutorial and actually kind of set you free. Like, you spend a full half of the game being having to deal with arbitrary party combinations that are intended to teach you how the battle system actually works. I don't think the battle system's that good, actually. Uh, The battle system works in FF13 because it has very specific 
uh, situations in which you are intended to implement certain strategies, which is kind of fun, I, I suppose. Um, so the way it works is you have a three different types, uh, three different modes that you can switch between, um, and it has kind of a fast-paced um, finding the right combination for your party is how it works. And then you need to basically build up a gauge until it breaks with an enemy. Like, I, I'm trying to... I'm casting my mind back, like, 10 years, because that's when I uh, I did the guys for Final Fantasy Thirteen. so I really oh, had God, to... God, it's been 10 years. Yeah, it's been nine years, actually, so... Still. Yeah. Yeah, so I did the guys for that one. I played all the way through it, and I beat it. Uh, some people have said that Final Fantasy 15 is basically the opposite of 13, and that 15 starts very open and then becomes very closed. 13 yeah. starts very closed and then becomes ever so slightly more open. Right. It has a yeah, lame villain. Its villain sucks. <laughs> I don't even know who the villain of 13 he's, is. He's like a pope guy? E- evil pope. <laughs> oh, it's RPGs. I've never done that before. Yeah, he's just like he leads the religion. Uh, there are a couple worlds. Uh, it's a very convoluted story and not especially memorable. I guess there are Final Fantasy thirteen defenders out there. Like the customization kind of sucks. I don't know. Like I, I can't imagine going back to thirteen. It's so slow paced and not that good. Yeah, um, it's just I have to say it's never. I have a, still have some RPGs that I'm of course have to catch up on, and I can't say thirteen is has ever entered my my sphere of oh I got to get that done. And then it's for thirteen two again, just so disjointed. Uh, it's a lot more open ended. Um, so you're playing as Lightning's sister and somebody else who I think is new. And then you can also recruit monsters, and you're going through different worlds. And a lot of people praise it as being a lot better than thirteen, and maybe that's the case. But I think that it really highlights how the battle system breaks down. Because without the really bespoke encounters, it becomes much more of a grind fest, and it's just not as fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, Final Fantasy Thirteen Defenders. Like, I just don't think it's good, like, as a game. <laughs> I think it's bad, actually. And that's the bottom line, because the Blood God said so. Yeah, sorry. Um, I don't know where I would put it. Or, see, I think I did my big Final Fantasy list, and I put it pretty near the bottom. Yeah, I think when we did our Final Fantasy panel, we ranked them. 13 was pretty close to the bottom, if not at the bottom. I think maybe Mystic Quest was below it. But oh, that was Mystic it. Quest is the worst, yeah. Yeah, poor Mystic Quest. I had a good soundtrack. So did 13, to be honest, but that's about it. Yeah, I think 15 is definitely better than 13, even though it's like somewhat messy. I just ultimately, I would have a more of a chance of going back to 15. I, I like the characters better. I kind of like the world better. Yeah. Yeah, battle 13, system, eh. I 15, don't know. They both have least, their problems. Ex- they both have their problems, definitely. But I feel like 15 at least has Square Enix getting back on track. I just kind of get the feeling from mm. it. It still kind of goes off the rails, but it's, does sound, it does feel like, okay, Square Enix is starting to get it again, especially since, yes, I actually do very much like the cast of Final Fantasy 15. I think people defend 13 because it was the last time that we had even kind of a remote vestige of Final Fantasy still feeling like Final Fantasy as we knew it. Because it was still turn-based, uh, the characters recognizably fit in the Final Fantasy universe, and, and it was messy as hell. But I think people clung on to it a little bit because they're like, because ap- after that, Final Fantasy just stopped being recognizable anymore. At least as a Final Fantasy game, yeah. But uh, and then again, twelve was 
kind of different, and it really worked out. It was out very different. <laughs> yeah. Very different. But 12 is a much better game. 12 is so good. Okay. Next one. Uh, Martin Summerfield. I just wondered with how much Nintendo has been focusing on remasters recently, if you think they will ever remaster their harder-to-get-hold-of back catalog like Paper Mario The Thousand-Year Door or Fire Emblem Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn. Uh, to answer your question, Martin, Paper Mario Thousand-Year Door, maybe. Uh, it doesn't seem like Nintendo has been that keen on revisiting its GameCube catalog. Yeah, which is very strange. Outside of Wind Waker and Twilight Princess. Like, but Mario Sunshine has been kind of MIA. Uh, the Pikmin games have been kind of scattershot. You don't see yeah, them you're that right. often. Yeah, you, you don't see them very often. Um, and it's a shame because Thousand Year Door was definitely one of the best games on that system. And I will sit here forever and evangelize about Thousand Year Door because I definitely want to see it on the Switch. Didn't it just have its anniversary? It's like 15 years, 15th year anniversary? Yes, it is it definitely did. 15. It is 15 this month. And uh, yeah, it is probably one of my top games for games I want to see ported to the Switch. It really it really established the incredible sense of humor. Like yes. Super Mario RPG had a good sense of humor, but Thousand Year Door took it to another level, I feel like. A Thousand Year Door, like that and Mario and Luigi series both just really established that Mario can have a sense of humor. Uh through its villains, through its setting, through its enemies. Um, I remember, I think Thousand Year Door has this has this town full of penguins, and they all speak as like Canadians. It's just stupid <laughs> things like that that just make it so much fun. There's like a certain amount of meta humor. Oh, there was definitely so much meta humor. Uh, the fact that you go into a back alley in the opening Rogueport town and, and see a body outline, a chalk outline of a toad, <laughs> just inferring that one was one got shot or killed there. That. It's amazing. I love that game so much. And y- you get off the boat, and you, s- you first thing you see is like a Pianta family whacking someone. It's just, <laughs> it's just great. Especially since I was not a fan of of Mario Sunshine. I didn't like the Pianta, so to see them in Thousand Year Door as a mafia family just made my made my life. As for Fire Emblem Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn, so the one thing going for it is that Ike is quite a popular character. Uh, mainly because Ike is in Super Smash Brothers. Yes. Uh, he has a cool design. He has a big sword. He uh, fights for his friends. He is unique among Fire Emblem characters in that he's not a noble. So mm-hmm. he is maybe a little more relatable. But yeah, just by the fact that he's in Smash Brothers automatically makes him very popular. So in that respect, I guess there's a 1% chance. I think the problem is... That Fire Emblem, Path of Radiance, and Radiant Dawn don't translate extremely well to HD. They were never that good-looking games in SD, actually. No, they weren't. They were kind of muddy, weren't they? I bought Radiant Dawn at launch, and I played, and I was, like, fully in my throes of Fire Emblem fandom. And I got a fair way into it, but ultimately dropped it because uh, the 3D graphics really weren't doing it for me. It was quite hard, actually. Uh, and Radiant Dawn is even harder, actually, for the Wii. And it um, the story was good, if I recall correctly. Uh, but it, it didn't do much for me. So what I would say is, if it got... Re- I, I would say that it would require a full-blown remake. Yeah, definitely. Because um, I, I know I bought one of them, at least. I think there was one, the one on the Wii. Were they both on the Wii? 
Yeah, uh, no. Path of Radiance was on the GameCube, and Radiant Dawn was on the Wii. Okay, so I had Radiant Dawn, and I just fell off it really fast. And I was, like you, I was really into Fire Emblem at the time, but I was playing it on the Game Boy Advance. And uh, I guess just the change to 3D, I, I guess it felt too weird to me to be on a, a console instead of a handheld. Yeah, Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn, oddly enough, you wouldn't have expected it being on console. Normally people would be like, oh, it goes to console, now it's hitting the mainstream. Well, that was kind of what began the nicheification of the series, I feel like. And it wasn't until uh, Awakening that it was able to break out of that. And I'm sure yeah. a lot of Fire Emblem fans, their hackles are raising as we speak for even saying that because uh, Radiant Dawn and Path of Radiance are fairly well regarded within the community because they're kind of old school Fire Emblems that are quite difficult, don't really pull their punches, have the classical Fire Emblem storytelling, and of course Awakening has a lot of its own issues and that kind of thing. But yeah, no, I don't think these are games that you can just immediately up and call it a day. I think you would have to remake them. And that's a lot of resources that maybe intelligent systems won't want to invest. But on the flip side, uh, intelligent systems is a lot keener on remakes, as we've seen with things like uh, Fire Emblem Echo, Shadows of Valencia, uh, there's talk of a genealogy of the Holy War remake, so we'll see. I guess. That's what I want to see. I'd rather see that instead of uh, a remake of the other ones, Path of Radiance and Radiant Dawn. Yeah, that and Thracia would be great because they're the games that never came out here, so aren't yeah. as well known. Also, Fire Emblem Six, the one with Roy. And in fact, that would I, would be interesting. Like, I would like them to make that one. Me too. I would really like to see that one. I was surprised when they gave us the one where Roy is born, but we, you don't play as Roy. You play as, was it, who's his father? Elliewood? Elliewood. Yeah. Well, yeah, the thing was him. is that Fire Emblem Blazing Sword was, it was probably the right call ultimately because it was a lot more accessible than the previous game. And then oh, that's true. If they had localized Fire Emblem 6 after Fire Emblem 7, people would have been like, what's this? It's like worse. Yeah, kind of a, it, it would almost be like when they planned to re- to uh, localize Final Fantasy 5 after localizing 6, uh, that would have probably raised some eyebrows. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, Eric F. asks, What are your and Nadia's takes on the latest ways of re-releases of older RPGs on Switch? The system hasn't seen much in the way of new AAA RPGs. has become a home to lots of Square Enix output, along with NAS and others. Is it good business sense and good for the platform, or just quick cash-ins because these companies are out of fresh ideas? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I honestly think it's... I'll be honest, I'd like to see more of it. I'm, I know I'm the worst kind of person here, but I think it was actually a very good idea to give us Dragon Quest 1, 2, and 3 after releasing Dragon Quest 11s for the Switch, because I think Dragon Quest 11s is making a lot of people say, oh, so he, this is a really cool Dragon Quest game, but we're all the way up to number 11. What were the first ones like? And as I've said many times before, 1 and 2 might not be your bag, but 3 still a really, really good play, and you should probably give it a chance. Um, and in the interest, again, in of game preservation, I'm always glad to kind of see some old games get new life on this on the Switch or elsewhere. Yeah, I think games rescuing games like Tokyo Mirage Sessions is yes. good. <laughs> yes, because um, that was one. If it, if that was not coming to the Switch, that would be that would be lost to time in in record time. Yeah, well, I mean, it was already kind of lost. It was already history, lost. Right? Yeah, yeah. As for 
as, as for the Switch's library, I mean, it has Fire Emblem Three Houses, which is still, to my mind, one of the absolute best games of the year. And uh, Octopath Traveler, which a lot of was certainly on our top 20 list last year. So it's not like it doesn't have any original RPGs. Mm-hmm. No, it definitely has some. It has some original RPGs there. Yes, I, I mean, I'm sure I can find more examples if I sit back and actually uh, think about it. <laughs> yeah, but it's Friday. I'm not thinking. Yeah, I mean, and then also we've got a new Shimagami Tensei on the way for it, and it feels like developers are going to be hitting the Switch a lot harder with original RPGs. So exclusive RPGs, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, it's very exactly. popular in Japan, so I wouldn't be shocked if it ends up having a long tail in that regard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll probably see a lot of games that are out on both PS4 and Switch. Um, for example, Super Robot Wars. Uh, the go. Switch has basically replaced Vita as the the other platform. Though, I warn you, if you buy Super Robot Wars on the Switch, you can't put in a custom soundtrack, which is a real bummer to Ooh, me. Ooh, that sucks. Yeah, because I really prefer being able to use the actual songs rather than kind of the more MIDI versions that they have in the game. And yeah, I can see why. One of the reasons that I've actually bounced off uh, Super Robot Wars T a little bit as, along with the fact that it's so similar to V that I'm like, ugh, I feel a little like I've already <laughs> played this game, and I don't know if I can go another 20 missions on this. But that that's another, that's an entirely different story. Uh, beyond that, you know, like, uh, so many of these games are coming to entirely new audiences. Um, I wouldn't yeah. be upset if Mass Effect came onto the Switch. No, because I, I haven't played it either, so there you go. Witcher 3 is coming onto the Switch. That's great. Yeah, that's excellent. Apparently, it's an excellent port as well. So, yes, it's so people have not played these RPGs are getting to play these RPGs. Nino Kuni is another one. So yeah, yeah. So that's basically what it comes down to is, uh, you know, a lot of people miss out the first time. They they try to get it the second time around, and I'm glad they have the opportunity. And are they naked cash ins? Oh yeah, but as long as they're good ports, I don't really care. Yeah, um, that's a big thing about it, too, is, like, they, they should be good ports. Like, there was a lot of complaints about the Grandia port for the Switch, and uh, they're releasing a patch for that to to address the problem, so I'm glad about that. But it wasn't the greatest version of the game ever, from what I hear. All right, so we're about out of time. Thank you to everybody who sent in questions. If you want to keep sending in questions and get your questions read on Acts of the Blood God, can I recommend that you send an email to cat.bailey at usgamer.net, leave a comment on our show notes, or send me a DM on Twitter, and I may read your letter on the show. I apologize if I didn't get to your note. It just ended up actually being pretty long, mostly because I was sitting here ranting about, I don't know, something, accessibility. <laughs> Final <laughs> Fantasy thirteen. I had a lot to go. rant about. Yeah, mailbags make you ranty. They sure do, don't they? They do, yeah. All right. So, Acts of Blood God, US Gamer Podcast. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Follow us on social media. I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia's at Nadia Oxford. Go read all of our great coverage over on the site, including our coverage of the whole Blizzard Hearthstone controversy, which has been consuming everything. Our coverage of the PS5. Nadia did a breakdown of the trivia that we've learned recently about the uh, Pokemon starters and our newest addition to the staff, Matthew Olson, did a big profile of the Killer Queen community now that Killer Queen Black is out on console and PC. 
So go check out all of that. And of course, subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every Wednesday. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk about more games. We got a fair amount to talk about because Witcher 3 is coming out and also Disco Elysium, which Mike Williams is reviewing. So we'll be hitting both of those in our next RPG podcast. But in the meantime, for Nani and myself, thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring. We'll be right back.